<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And this is Ada Shen from Beijing. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. The Belt and Road Forum ended after two days in Beijing, during which many of our listeners in the Chinese capital enjoyed beautiful blue skies. Much of the talk has been on what countries showed up and how much China has pledged to invest. The totals come to a combined $55 billion in specialized loans to be extended by policy lenders, an injection of 100 billion yuan into the state-owned Silk Road Fund, and another $10 billion in aid to nations and international organizations participating in the program to alleviate poverty and improve well-being. In short, just a ton of money. Many questions emerged, though, on the internet as to whether China is actually rich enough to give so much. China's deputy bank governor answered that question by telling the People's Daily that investments would generate commercial returns. It is possible that along the Maritime Silk Road, China may develop the use of an unconventional fuel source called combustible ice, which also goes by the more formal name gas hydrate. On Thursday, the country announced that Chinese miners had produced methane gas from combustible ice for eight days straight from a drilling platform in the South China Sea. This type of gas is found on the ocean floor and in permafrost areas. In 2013, Japan became the first country to successfully extract methane gas from the sea. China has been researching the potential use of combustible ice since 1998. If China can really collect gas in what it claims is a safe and controllable manner over a relatively long period of time, this development will have an important impact in ensuring China's energy security. But commercialization is still a long way off. For Chinese tech companies, it was a big earnings week for Alibaba, especially a very good one. Its quarterly income jumped by 60% year on year thanks to active e-commerce. Since this company became the icon for the new economy in China, there have been rumors that the China Railway Corporation is going to be selling some shares to it. Separately, a video clip was circulated on Weibo this week about AliPay, Alibaba's payment system, indicating the next chapter is going to be all about biometric payment. You can just go without a phone entirely. Let a camera scan your face, type in the last four digits of your cell phone number, and voila, the payment is made. They always did tell us that face was important in China. 
Of course, mobile phones are the way people pay for things these days. Uh, that's been in business news this week. We talked to Caixin editor Doug Young to hear what's going on in that area. Doug, catch us up. This week, we're looking at a couple of stories uh, that are related. Uh, one comes from Starbucks and the other one comes from McDonald's. And they both tell a pretty similar tale. The Starbucks is some new data that they've just announced, which says that 29% of their payments are made by people using their cell phones, uh, using those checkerboard QR codes. And the other news from McDonald's is that the number is even higher. People using their mobile phones to pay for their meals is actually 45% of all people. And these are pretty remarkable numbers, especially for Starbucks, because they didn't really accept any mobile payments at all until late last year, like either last November or December, when they announced a big tie-up with WeChat. And so now, just five or six months after rolling that out, suddenly they're getting almost a third of their payments are coming from mobile payments. So is the data that you cite actually China-wide? Yeah, those are China-wide figures for the two companies. So McDonald's, and they, they pointed out in their report that in cities like Beijing, it's, it's even higher. So 45% was for their nationwide, all their retail sales. In big cities like Beijing, McDonald's said the number can get as high as like 55%. And these are really just rates that are maybe one or two years old. They haven't been accepting these mobile payments that long. So you can see just the conversion rate is huge. So has China basically leapfrogged credit cards? And, and how does digital payment in the U.S. actually stack up against China? The two questions are actually sort of related. What she said is true. It's, it's much lower in the U.S., much lower in these Western markets. And I think a big reason for that is, like you said, China's leapfrogged these Western markets because the big gorilla in both of these markets and all these Western markets is credit cards. And people, they're, they're a very well-established infrastructure. They're safe. If somebody steals your credit card, there are lots of systems in place for getting it replaced. So they're a much more established presence. Whereas in China, I think 95% of the people still don't own credit cards. So, you know, you're talking a market that really needs some sort of electronic payment. So rather than go with these credit cards, which are a little bulky, uh, not nearly as convenient as, as your mobile phone, and they're not as fast either, you know, you have to swipe it, do a signature, which often you don't need to do for mobile phones gives you a little slip of paper rather than having the transactions all nicely recorded on your phone. The phone is just a much more convenient interface for doing all this, but because the credit cards are so well established in the West, I think that's been a big barrier for this technology getting in there. And where do you see this going? A big question I ask, and, and a lot of other people ask, is, is China going to start exporting this stuff to the West? And the jury seems to be out right now. Uh, the two big players in China are WeChat and Alipay. And they've both tried to make steps into Europe and the U.S., but they really don't seem to be making much progress. You know, but it's we're talking technology that's less than a year old in these markets. These companies have gone to these markets probably for less than a year. But again, they are fighting a big battle because... You've got these big established players in MasterCard and Visa and other credit card issuers. So I think it's going to be tough. The, the one place where they are selling to is Chinese people who go abroad. So they're getting local merchants to accept WeChat and Alipay. So the infrastructure's there. The question is, are they going to be able to convert Americans and Europeans to actually signing up for these accounts. I think the credit card resistance because of credit cards is probably one issue. Another issue, I think, is also just China. 
a lot of Westerners are probably slightly mistrustful of Chinese technology, giving out their personal data to a Chinese company. That hurt Tencent before when they tried to launch WeChat in the States. These will both be issues that they have to overcome. And, you know, it's also possible a, a homegrown Western player may jump in and start using some of this technology. So I maybe give them like a 20, 30 percent chance of, of succeeding in the West, exporting this technology. Thanks, Doug. Some macro numbers are in for April, and there are signs of slowing. Let's turn to Fran Wong, who covers macroeconomics for Taishin Global. Fran, what's going on with China's economy? The latest figures released by the government, the National Bureau of Statistics, on Monday shows that China's economic activity showed signs of slowing in April because increases in key indicators such as industrial production, investment, and consumption softened. And this is the first time in nine months that growth in all these indicators slowed. Was this expected? Yes. Actually, the slowdown in April confirmed analysts' expectations before that China's growth recovery has already peaked the first quarter of the year. Actually, China's gross domestic product rose by 6.9% in the first quarter year-on-year, and that was the second straight quarterly acceleration in eight or ten quarters, and it was well above the government's four-year target of around 6.5%. However, analysts are saying that the economy may show signs of slowing in the second quarter, partly due to policymakers tightening measures in the financial market to curb risks from debt. How is China's property market doing? The headline property investment growth number picked up slightly in the first four months from the first quarter, mainly due to the funding need of ongoing projects that started during the property market boom last year. However, if you look at the breakdown numbers, you will find that investment in residential property development, which accounts for about two-thirds of total real estate investment, actually moderated as an increasing number of local governments tightening measures on purchases to cause surge prices gradually taking effects. And and what, what measures are they taking? They are restricting the number of homes that each family can buy. And also they're raising down payment requirements as well as mortgage interest rates. What effect has it had so far? transactions stalled in big cities. Uh, They banned commercial properties from being altered into houses and sold to individual consumers in in some big cities. And so what's your your takeaway from this? Uh, The economic growth is still doing okay, which provided a short window of opportunity for policymakers to press ahead with their efforts to reduce financial leverages before they will be forced to shift their focus back to supporting growth later this year, probably in autumn, when ruling Communist Party is embracing its major personnel reshuffle in every five years. Thanks, Fran. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll hear how major Chinese carrier China Unicom is reporting a faked revenue scandal in Shanxi province, with as much as a third of revenues over a five-year period completely fabricated. We'll find out how Chinese smartphone brands are doing on the other side of the Himalayas in the fast-growing Indian smartphone market. We'll look at Ant Financial's plans to seek a massive loan for a planned acquisition of MoneyGram. We'll hear how a massive algae bloom in Yunnan's Arhai Lake is hurting tourism and agriculture in the region. And we'll look at the questionable methods and immoral practices of workers who are working to supposedly restore a 600-year-old early Ming heritage site in Anhui province.
from business and tech. China Unicom says it uncovered massive revenue falsification in Shanxi Unit by Qin Min and Yang Ge. Beijing. China Unicom, the nation's second largest wireless carrier, has disciplined 73 employees in Shanxi province after discovering widespread falsification of new business to inflate revenue from their areas, according to multiple company sources. An internal investigation by China United Network Communications Group Company Limited determined the falsification in the north-central province was systemic, reaching up to the highest levels of management in individual cities where the fraud occurred, the sources told Caixin. Much of the investigation was detailed in an internal memo, which included reflection on why such massive internal data falsification had occurred, they added. Over a five-year period, Unicom's Shanxi unit reported 5 billion yuan, $726 million in revenue, of which 1.8 billion yuan, or about a third, was faked, the sources said, citing an internal message from CEO Wang Xiaochu. Most of the fraud occurred in areas outside of Xi'an, the provincial capital. The most egregious offenders included the cities of Tongchuan, Yulin, and Hanzhong, according to the report, which labeled the problem a systemic falsification of business data. Some former top representatives and high officials of Shanxi Unicom have ignored the law and blindly pursued big growth, giving out unrealistic budgets and goals and ways to achieve those. This has been a major reason for the falsification of data, Unicom said in the eternal report, reflecting on the situation. The various employees have received a range of severe punishments, including removal from office, administrative warnings, and deductions from performance pay. Shares of Unicom's Hong Kong-listed unit, China Unicom Hong Kong Limited, were down 0.4% late in the Wednesday trading day. The company previously reported its revenue fell 1% in 2016 to 274.2 billion yuan, while its profit tumbled 94% to 630 million yuan. Word of the case comes just four months after an even larger similar one, which saw northeast China's Liaoning province admit that three years of recent economic data were inflated by about 20% from 2011 to 2014. Observers say the problem has existed for years, in part because it was widely tolerated as officials looked for ways to meet aggressive growth targets. But recent actions, including the Liaoning case, have indicated the central government is trying to clamp down on the practice. Business and Tech, May 18th, 2017. China brands dial up more than half of India's smartphone market by Yang Ge. Chinese smartphone brands took more than half of India's market for the first time in this year's first quarter, using the experience in relatively high-quality low-end models to steal market share from homegrown players. Chinese brands took 51.4% of the market in the first three months of the year, representing a gain of 16.9% from the fourth quarter and more than double their share from a year ago, according to IDC. Chinese brands have been flocking to India over the last three years, hoping to replicate their success from the home market, where they now dominate. Most have capitalized on their expertise in low-end models that can sell for the equivalent of $100 US or less, an important factor in a highly price-sensitive market like India. To further lower costs, a growing number of Chinese brands are also setting up manufacturing facilities in the country. Reflecting the strong demand for cheap models, the average price of a phone for the market was just $155 US in the first quarter, up from $131 a year earlier, according to IDC. 
South Korea's Samsung Electronics led the market for the quarter with a 28.1% share, but all others among the top five brands came from China. Those were led by Xiaomi at 14.2% share and who has become the second most popular brand just three years after entering the market. Xiaomi's Red Note 4, which starts at the equivalent of $155, US was the market's best-selling model during the quarter, the first time a Chinese model has earned that distinction, taking the top spot from Samsung's Galaxy J2. In overall market share, Xiaomi was followed by Vivo, Oppo, and Lenovo, which each had about 10% of the market, IDC said. Most of the Chinese gains came at the expense of homegrown Indian brands, whose share plunged to 13.5% of the overall market, down from 40.5% a year earlier. Homegrown vendors are making attempts to recapture the lost ground with new launches in sub-$100 as well as in the mid-range segment, but intense competition from China-based vendors continues to be a major challenge and is expected to increase in coming quarters, IDC analyst Jaypal Singh said. Recovery of homegrown vendors is necessary for the Indian smartphone market not only to fill in the vacuum created for the last few quarters, but also to fuel feature phone-to-smartphone migration. From Business and Tech, Ant Financial creeps toward $3.5 billion loan in pursuit of MoneyGram by Chu Yanxu and Yang Ge. Beijing, Ant Financial Services Group, parent of the popular Alipay electronic payments service, is near a deal for a $3.5 billion syndicated bank loan, a company source told Caixin as the financial firm chases its biggest ever offshore purchase in pursuit of global expansion. The deal would come just a month after Ant Financial's last major funding, which saw it raise $4.5 billion in late April. The company has said it wants to eventually make an IPO, but has never given a timetable. The source told Caixin there is still no timetable as Ant Financial gets close to closing the massive bank loan. Analysts and observers said the new loan is almost certainly linked to Ant Financial's pending deal to buy MoneyGram International Inc., a U.S.-based money transfer specialist with a strong global presence. The loan is likely to replace temporary funds that are being used to drive the $1.2 billion purchase, said Brock Silvers, managing director at investment advisor Kaiyuan Capital. Ant Financial initially agreed to pay $880 million for MoneyGram in a friendly deal announced in January. But rival bidder Euronet Worldwide Inc. made a higher offer and sought to convince investors that Ant Financial's deal could get vetoed by Washington due to political sensitivities. Ant Financial later raised its offer to the current $1.2 billion figure about a month ago. A successful purchase would mark a major advance for Ant Financial onto the global stage. To date, it has extended its core Alipay service into a number of Asian and Western markets, but most of its overseas users are Chinese traveling abroad. The new financing displays Ant's confidence in the MoneyGram deal despite a growing sense of political trepidation in Washington, Silver said. It also enables an immediate offer of a cash deal to MoneyGram shareholders, which may help to soothe any objections. And by not trying to finance its acquisition with an equity sale, Ant can continue its preparations for a larger and presumably more lucrative IPO once the merger has closed. Ant Financial has been at the forefront of a new generation of financial technology or fintech firms emerging from China's private sector over the last decade as China opens its financial services market to private investment. That group has been raising billions of dollars in cash, mostly from private investors, with a new wave of companies getting set for offshore IPOs later this year, mostly in the U.S. Ant Financial has been the most aggressive money raiser with its latest $4.5 billion funding round, marking a record for an internet company. 
Ant Financial has made no indication it is in any rush to make an IPO, though previous reports have indicated such a listing would probably come in Hong Kong, the Chinese mainland, or both locations concurrently. Environment, May 18, 2017. Goodbye, Dolly. Hip tourist spot turns into ghost town as sewage scare prompts shutdown. By Zhou Chen, Wu Meiwei, and Li Rongde. Dali, Yunnan Province. Once a magnet for tourists, the bustling waterfront of Dali now looks like a ghost town. A little over a month after the local government ordered over 1,000 bars, restaurants, and hotels dotting the shores of idyllic Arhai Lake to shut down. Owners were given 10 days' notice to cancel bookings and wind-down operations after authorities announced on March 31st a sweeping review of the waste disposal systems of businesses around China's second-largest Highland Lake. It is now not clear how long the review will last, and the government has not announced any compensation for losses accrued. The drastic move was prompted by a three-month-long algae outbreak on the river in late fall, which reappeared in January and lasted until the end of Lunar New Year at the end of the month. Authorities have partly blamed these businesses, many of which are operating without a license, for dumping raw sewage, food waste, and other garbage into waterways feeding the lake. But business owners say a freeze on their operations will only turn into a costly temporary fix, because the real problem is the area's lack of a sewage treatment facility and a garbage collection system. Why are the businesses suddenly the culprits for a long-standing problem, asked Tianjin, a hotel owner from neighboring Guangdong province, who invested 3 million yuan, or $436,000, in Dali after the local government introduced a slew of measures to attract investors in recent years. Why has no one been held accountable for taking so long to tackle the pollution problem in Arhai? The Dali government has pledged 3 billion yuan to build a pipeline network and a sewage treatment facility through a public-private partnership by 2020. But until then, cleaning crews on boats will have to fish out tons of algae bloom that are choking the lake. The ear-shaped lake covers about 250 square kilometers and is the main lifeline of Dali. This picturesque town of 3.6 million residents, mostly from the minority Bai community, relies on tourism for nearly a quarter of its income. The number of visitors drawn to the oasis seeking an eco-bohemian lifestyle has nearly quadrupled over the past decade, according to official figures. There were over 40 million visits last year alone. This influx has fueled a construction boom. In Chuanglong, a thousand-year-old fishing village, the number of small restaurants and motels exploded from a handful to nearly 580 establishments in the past few years, but nearly 90% were operating without a license, Tian said. Who allowed the tourism industry to grow so recklessly in the first place, she asked. The unbridled development means that the water quality in the lake, categorized as pristine in 2015 by an environmental ministry report, now oscillates between good and lightly polluted, according to local government data released in March but the waterways feeding the lake are heavily polluted to a level that it should not come into direct contact with human skin, data shows. If the level of pollution at high Lake itself deteriorates to this level, it would sound the death knell for the local tourism industry. We have no way out but to fight a make-or-break battle when it comes to tackling pollution in high Lake, Dolly Party Secretary Chen Jian said. The Dolly government has also appropriated farmland and shut down cattle ranches near the lake to prevent fertilizer runoff from poisoning its waters. Families have been ordered to seal their wells due to fears that they may deplete groundwater stocks, which in turn would affect water levels in the lake. Fishing has also been banned since January. The local government said it will allow businesses that have the necessary sanitation and hygiene certifications and a slew of other documents needed to function legally to reopen as soon as the reviews on the establishment are completed. 
but they haven't offered any compensation for losses due to the curb. Local media are calling the government's move, which has paralyzed the region's tourism industry, as a form of shock therapy. Choked by algae. The sudden crackdown by the government has another aim, to reduce the number of permanent residents living on the shores of Arhai Lake and around areas designated as conservation zones. A local government plan viewed by Taishin said it is best to maintain the population around the lake at 200,000 to 500,000 people to control pollution. But the number of permanent residents running cafes, bars, guest houses, and karaoke clubs on the lakefront has ballooned to 860,000 people, overwhelming the area's already fragile sewage system. Cleanup crews at the lake told Saishin that about 600 workers in boats have usually spent about six months a year in the past decade cleaning up the algae and harmful aquatic plants in the lake that threatened to kill the lake's biodiversity. One worker said that his small team of about 10 people usually collects 12 boatloads, or 100 cubic meters, of waste every day, and the algae breakouts were getting worse. The lake was choked by blue algae over three months last year, up from just 15 days in 2014 and 45 days in 2015, according to government data. A local government document viewed by Taishin showed that workers had collected nearly 23,000 tons of algae from the lake between November and March during the latest outbreak. Officials in Dali fear that Arhai Lake will face the same fate as the province's largest lake, Dianchi, which has been polluted by agricultural runoff and the unregulated rise of tourism. Locals still call Dianchi Lake in the provincial capital of Kunming the Mother Lake. Although the government has spent nearly 50 billion yuan to clean it up over the past two decades, it remains toxic. Decades of lax environmental laws and negligible punishments for violators has meant that many of China's large water bodies are now polluted. 44 of the 62 large lakes in China under the watch of the Ministry of Environmental Protection are somewhere between lightly and heavily polluted, according to the 2015 China, China Environmental Situation Report released by the ministry in May 2016. In the case of our high lake, booming tourism coupled with reclamation of wetlands around the lake for farming has led to the alarming pollution seen in recent years, according to a recent government assessment. Killing the cash cow Fertilizer runoff from crop and cattle farms around the lake was the source of more than half of the nitrogen and ammonia-based pollutants in our high lake, according to a 2013 study by the China Central Normal University. Nearly 90% of the small cattle farms in Dali that have about 40,000 dairy cows lack proper waste disposal facilities, according to research by Zhou Jing, a city planner at the China Center for Urban Development. Each cow generates 25 times the waste of a human, says Zhou. Local farmers also grow garlic, which they call their cash cow crop. We used to earn 150,000 yuan from planting garlic or tobacco on an acre of land every year, said Li Zhuho, a farmer in Gushang village. But the government is now taking over the land for organic and water-efficient farming and has promised to pay farmers 12,000 yuan per acre in compensation every year, according to the land lease document viewed by Taishin. Asked how his family will cope with the sudden loss of income, Li fell into a long silence before mumbling, I don't know. Small business owners who were the backbone of the local tourism boom are facing the same uncertainty. From property, conservation at major historic site suspended after workers found to be using barbarian methods by Li Rongde and Zheng Danmei. Beijing, cultural authorities have suspended conservation work at a major heritage site in Nanhui province after workers were discovered using barbarian methods that had harmed the 600-year-old relics. 
The site in Anhui's Fengyang County, known as Zhengdu, or the Central Capital, dates back to the Ming Dynasty, 1368-1644. Zhengdu was an attempt by the first emperor of the Ming Dynasty, Chu Yuanzhang, to build a new capital in his hometown. The undertaking was never completed, but the grand city, with palaces akin to the Forbidden City, served as the model for subsequent imperial capitals built in Nanjing and Beijing, according to historians. But conservation work on the site, spanning 280 acres, came to an abrupt halt on Wednesday. Investigators found that conservation teams at the site were using barbarian methods, including the improper use of electric drills, the Anhui Provincial Culture Heritage Bureau said in a statement released the same day. The investigation was prompted by a war of words between the historian who first shed light on the damage caused by the restoration teams and the Fengyang County government, which downplayed the situation. A post by Zhang Hongjie, a historian and a blogger in Beijing, said after a tour of the site on Sunday that workers were using electric drills to remove old bricks and laying new ones in their place. This amounts to replacing real heritage with fake, he wrote. It's not conservation, but ruining a major relic under state protection. Zhang's post on Weibo, China's equivalent of Twitter, quickly went viral, triggering a public outcry. In an interview with Xin on Wednesday, Zhang also claimed that workers tried to sell some old bricks to him for several thousand yuan, including a brick with an inscription on it. The Fengyang County Cultural Radio and Press Bureau, overseeing heritage affairs, first defended the conservation program, saying in a statement on Tuesday that the program was carried out in accordance with a plan approved by the State Administration of Cultural Heritage. Electric drills were used because the old bricks and binding material were too hard to remove by hand, it said. The workers hadn't sold any old bricks, but simply bragged about the value of the ancient bricks in front of tourists, the Bureau said. The Provincial Cultural Heritage Bureau ordered the county authority on Wednesday to suspend conservation work pending a review to assess possible damage. The provincial authority stopped short of saying whether anyone would be held accountable. The Zhengdu Imperial City was listed as a heritage site under state protection in 1982. It is among 4,000 such sites with national-level protection status in China. But several high-profile relics in the list have been damaged during restoration. Photos showing a section of the Great Wall in Suizhong County in Liaoning Province covered in thick concrete during a government-sanctioned restoration operation triggered a huge uproar in September. The segment of the ancient wall, built in the Ming Dynasty, is also in the National List of Protected Heritage Sites. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Lee Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and be sure to follow the news from China daily at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care. Take care.